I'm Father Mitch Packle, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at the Word of God, and especially in this series of programs that we're doing, we're taking a look at applying the suffering and death of Christ to our own difficulties. Now, we're going to look today especially at the way of the cross that our Lord Jesus walked, especially talking about the compassion of the women that met our Lord Jesus along the Via Dolorosa, the way of sadness, so that it would be a guiding example for how the church should approach those who are suffering uh, in various crises, and again, we've been talking a lot about the sexual abuse crisis and how we approach that, not only from very important perspectives of sociology and psychology and the law, but for us to come to this kind of crisis that we've had in the church from the perspective of prayer and coming to see the pain and suffering of the church in the light of Christ's pain and suffering. Now, if you have any questions or comments, especially related to today's topic, we invite you to be part of the show by calling us uh, during the live program, which is Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can call us at one 800 221-9460. If you are outside North America, that number will not work, but you can still call in if you call country code 1, area code 205 205-271-2980. Or you can also contact us through email by writing to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com or follow us and participate with the show on YouTube. Now, we are continuing on from last week in Chapter 6 of my book called Wheat and Tares, uh, Restoring the Moral Vision of a Scandalized Church. You can get this at EWTN's Religious Catalog. Just go to EWTNRC.com. It is item 81098. 81098. And if you already have the book, we are starting today's discussion on page 134. Now, if you recall, last week we began speaking about the women who met Jesus and were there to comfort him on the way to Calvary. This is traditionally found in our churches as the eighth station. And uh, it's a small little place uh, in Jerusalem. It's, it's, the streets have changed in Jerusalem, so there's just a little marker uh, because now it's a Coptic monastery, but there is a chapel for the sixth, for the uh, seventh and eighth stations, and uh, this is depicted in the 
upstairs chapel, the eighth station. And just to refresh our memories, I was quoting from Luke chapter 23, verse 28, when Jesus said to those women that were there to console him, he said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breast that never gave suck. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do this when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? So, our Lord warns them about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. It would happen 40 years after his death and resurrection, a full generation. And in that destruction, the, the temple would be burned down and the city leveled. Uh, the, the residents of Jerusalem were forced to even tear down the walls of the city and their houses were destroyed by the Romans. And these warnings are using images and phrases from the Old Testament prophets. This shows how, you know, well-versed in the Bible Christ had been. If you take a look at the prophet Hosea, who's writing just about the uh, 750s and 40s all the way through the 720s B.C. And in chapter 10, verse 8, Hosea wrote, The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, fall upon us. And that phrase, Avon, or that word Avon, is a word that is used to describe a place. It's given as a first, you know, as a name for it. But Avon means to be guilty, or it literally comes from the Hebrew word meaning to be bent and that the guilty are bent. That is, when you think of an arrow, it has to be straight, yashar in Hebrew, to be able to shoot the arrow. A bent arrow cannot hit its targets. I do archery, and you, you have to have straight arrows, or else you cannot hit a target. They go off. And... You know, this idea of being bent is an image, like a bent arrow, is an image of uh, how you will miss the mark. You will miss the target. And the word for sin in Hebrew, chata, means to miss the target. So you can't hit the target because you're bent. That's what Hosea was using to describe the city uh, and because it's so guilty of sin that it is bent. And then there's also a passage in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 19 to 22, which is also from 
the, sometime in the 740s BC. And it says, and men shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground and from before the terror of the Lord and from, from the glory of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, men will cast forth their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caves of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the glory of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Turn away from man in whose nostrils is breath, for what account is he? That's also behind this, this image of how you know, people will try to hide in the mountains, in the caves. That's where we find caves, by the way. And the Holy Land is filled with lots and lots of caves. So this is something that they're going to try, but they won't be able to hide from the glory of the Lord. And you think, wait a minute, I'd love to see the glory of the Lord. Well, you would if you are not a sinner. If you are a bad person, the glory of the Lord will be experienced as terror. It's, um, you can't handle it. Just like in that one movie where it says, you can't handle the truth. Uh, you can't handle seeing God when you are in sin and if you are clinging to your sin. So it's impossible to hide from him. We also see how these same ideas show up in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, beginning with verse 15 and 16. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the generals and the rich and the strong and everyone, slave and free, hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand before it? That this kind of imagery that the prophets had used, that is basically trying to show you'll, you'll try to hide from God, just as Adam and Eve tried to hide from the Lord God in the garden after they had sinned. Their sin made them afraid of God's presence. And so will it be on the day of judgment. People will ask the rocks to hide, but you cannot hide from God. You cannot run. Even if the mountains cover you, you will be found by God. There's no cave so deep that he is not already there. This is a very important thing. And it, it's good to re, be reminded of this because, in fact, tomorrow is Ash Wednesday. By the way, all of you lovely sweethearts out there, hope you're having your Valentine's celebration today rather than tomorrow. Remember, there's no meat tomorrow. It's a day of fasting and abstinence from meat. Um, unless, of course, you want to have a fish sandwich or something <laughs> for your uh, Valentine's celebration. But, you know, it'd be good to eat your chocolates today so you can get a two-for-one sale. 
You have your Mardi Gras celebration and your Valentine's all on one day. How's that sound? But, you know, uh, be that as it may, this idea of Ash Wednesday is an important one. And, it, you know, we wear ashes to show that we are dust and unto dust we shall return. And that we remind ourselves of the inevitability of death and how in death we cannot hide from God. He will judge our souls. And this is what Christ is bringing out to these women that were there to comfort him on his way to his execution. But in fact, he speaks to them of a deeper truth, a truth they don't know yet, namely that the holy city was going to be destroyed, and it was 40 years later. Um, and this is a, a very important thing for uh, everybody to realize what Jesus is saying. You cannot hide from the judgment of God. Now, this conversation between Jesus and these women of Jerusalem is pertinent to our own situation, in particular in the issue of the pre-sexual abuse scandal. And there are a couple ways in which it is relevant. Um, the most important is that uh, it, it applies to the victims of the abuse. That's who we always have to keep at the forefront here, the victims of the abuse. And that includes sm small children at times, mostly adolescents. That's the main uh, group. Uh, some adults who are abused in those relationships. Um, uh, and that includes the disabled. Sometimes it was nuns. We saw the uh, famous priest artist who had abused sisters. Vulnerable uh, seminarians. Sometimes other clergy who were not in a position of power were forced to do things. Uh, and various other lay people. And then, of course, there's also the victimization that applied to their families who experienced tremendous shock. You know, that the, this was a part of it. And then, of course, you also have as a, another kind of group that applies to us all, namely the whole church that is trying to cope with this scandal, with, with being shocked by you know, clergy abusing their position. Um, and the, there are a lot of people who suffered from the abuse that need comfort the way these women needed Jesus to comfort them. And again, that would include the friends and family of the abused, but also would include clergy, some of whom have been falsely accused. There were uh, definite perpetrators of these terrible crimes, but there were also some clergy who did nothing wrong. But, you know, for, for 
right of reasons, uh, were accused sometimes to get back at them from by other people, other times um, to try to go for money uh, from them, that uh, a variety of things happened. And I'm sure there might have been times where they were mistaken for somebody else, it could be that, but I know there have been priests falsely accused, uh, and they've suffered quite a bit. And then, you know, also, of course, those who never were involved in any of these kinds of scandals, but they get tarred with the same brush. When you take a look at the way the media covered some of this, you would get the impression that every single Catholic priest was involved when it was actually about 3%. Bad enough, bad enough to be sure, but it was not the majority by, or anything close to uh, a majority, it was 3%. But the rest of us, you know, um, were tarred with that brush. And this is something, well, we can help each other. I think everybody has to be available to console the people around us who suffer. That's very important. But it is most poignant to recognize that it is the suffering Lord Jesus. I mean, our Lord had already been scourged, crowned with thorns. He was carrying the cross and then was so weak that Simon of Cyrene had to help him, that all of this is going on as he suffers. And it is he, as he carries his cross to Golgotha, that consoles the best because he understands the pain from inside pain. He had been falsely accused. He has been suffering because of other people. And he understands that suffering in a very distinctive way because he's there suffering too. It's in the midst of his own physical and, and, and certainly emotional and spiritual pain that began in Gethsemane, in the midst of that, he tries to bring comfort. And this is something that all of us can, you know, experience from our blessed Lord. Um, and this is something that we can trust, that not only does he know our sins, but he knows the intensity of our pain. He knows it more deeply than we know it ourselves. And just as the sinner cannot hide from God, even if the mountains were to fall on them, they can't hide from God's judgment. Neither do we have uh, an ability to hide our broken hearts from him. They're not hidden from God. We sometimes may think that we're abandoned, but we're not. It's just that it's sometimes hard to recognize that it's Jesus in his suffering that is meeting us in our suffering. And we're somewhat shocked. We might want to see the great power and glory breaking through, but it's Christ being crucified that meets us where we are in our pain. And that is part of the most poignant aspect of this encounter.
between Jesus and the woman, women on the road to Jerusalem. We're going to take a short break. We'll come back and continue with this passage, so please stay with us. about Christ in his suffering, meeting us in our suffering, is an extremely important mystery of our Christian faith. And in it, we can discover the power of suffering and redemption. This is how Christ redeems us, by his suffering. But he also meets us in ours and invites us to join our suffering with his. Our pain is real, but it's not futile. It's not meaningless. It has a power to affect us and other people. And this is something that St. Paul taught very clearly in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, where he wrote, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. That um, there is a power in our suffering to help other people in the church. And that happens in a number of ways. Sometimes from what we learn about life by suffering. The pain that we go through in life can teach us wisdom and give us a depth of empathy with others so that we can engage them where they are. We don't have to just tell them, well, just buck up and smile and it'll all go away. You know, you know, people who are suffering learn to meet other people in their pain. And they learn wisdom from all that. But it is also, besides that, we actually can unite our suffering with that of Christ. And in uniting what we go through with him, just as St. Paul says here, it brings transformation and hope and salvation to the rest of the church. Our suffering, willingly accepted and given to Christ, is something that has a power because his suffering has power. It's only when it's in union with Jesus 
But our suffering does have a power to bring healing to ourselves and to the people around us. Uh, and we do that uniting of our suffering with Christ every day in our prayer when we make the morning offering and we offer all our, our prayers, works, joys, and sufferings to Christ. We give them to him so that he can use them for the sake of the church. This is a very important part of life, but also at Mass, as we talked about last week. At Mass, you also bring, as your offering to God, your sacrifice, what St. Paul calls your spiritual sacrifice, logikon, that this is something that you offer up and join to Christ in the Eucharist, and he can bring healing not only to us, but to other people around us. There is also something that we uh, can learn from our Lord's meeting with these women on the uh, streets of Jerusalem, is that he can give a wider historical perspective on uh, suffering, on his own sufferings, and on their future sufferings. He helps them to see it in wider context. And this is something where we can learn, as Jesus you know, talked about his own suffering, don't weep for me, but for your children, because there's something coming in the future. His wider perspective can help us to see what's going on in us in, that in a wider view. And we can look at history and get a wider view ourselves. You know, one of the things, if you ever get a chance to read up on the history of the church, you see that one of the worst periods for church scandal, especially sexual scandal, was in the 10th and 11th centuries. So the 10 hundreds up until the middle of the uh, 10 hundreds. It was a horrible situation uh, and it went from the popes, uh, most of the popes at that time were really not very good people at all. It's just horrible. And there are a number of the bishops. But at the same time, there were a number of saints that the Lord had called up. And he used them to help correct that situation and bring reform on different levels of the church. St. Peter Damon is, a, uh, Damien is, is one of them. And a number of people like Pope uh, uh, Gregory VII. Uh, Hildebrand, these were uh, great people that worked hard at reform. Their lives were threatened. People wanted to kill them because they didn't want reform, but they, they did so. There was, in those days, there was widespread homosexual abuse going on in the monasteries, and there was wide, widespread open concubinage in the diocesan rectories. The priests were living with their girlfriends and having families with them. This was all over the place. They dealt with those issues. 
Then we also can see, if you look at the, uh, especially the later 15th century and the first half of the 16th century, there was another period of widespread abuse. Alexand Pope Alexander VI, um, you know, loved his family. Problem was he shouldn't have had it. Uh, he had his girlfriends and kids and all kinds of terrible things going on. And uh, there, there were problems with, with the Medici popes uh, in the 15-teens and 20s. Um, these were high problems, but this was also transformed by saints, like St. Ignatius Loyola, the founder of my order, who founded the Jesuits to help bring reform to the church. Or St. Uh, 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 Philip Neri. St. Philip Neri also started a community in Rome to evangelize Rome, where a lot of bishops wanted to live because it was, it was like New York, the, the cultural capital of the world, and you could do all kinds of wild things. Or St. Charles Borromeo, who went to Milan after making the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. He went to Milan to reform the clergy there who were also in open concubinage, just as in the time of St. Peter Damien. And it was so bad, one of the priests shot him in the back. It's a good thing in those days they had high quality vestments because, and low quality guns because the vestment he was wearing at benediction absorbed the shot and you know he didn't he didn't die but they, he brought reform also another kind of perspective we should get is that sexual abuse is widespread in our culture i urge you to look up a study by Cheryl Shakespeare who had studied the prevalence of sexual abuse of children in the public schools, where when she did the report in the 1990s, it was 9.4% of teachers and staff were abuse, abusing children. It's more than three times the rate as among the Catholic clergy. But you didn't hear about that, did you? Yeah, you can find that report, it's online. And it's, it's very detailed. And I'm told that now the percentage has gone even higher because they're not addressing it as much as it needs to be. And so, it, and you're talking in the 1990s alone that there were 290,000 children who had been abused, more than half by the women teachers. This is, this is a problem. We also see that a high percentage of children are abused in homes, especially when there is a single mom and a boyfriend or other comes in, and the farther away he is from the birth of the children, the more likely it becomes that he might be abusive physically or sexually. This is something that we as a whole society need to gain perspective that it's a problem not limited to the church by any means, not limited to the Catholics, and not uh, limited to just one or two professions like teachers and clergy. 
medical doctors, dentists, psychologists, wide variety of folks, as well as members of families. So just as Jesus tried to speak to the daughters of Jerusalem to understand their culture and the, see this wider view of the coming destruction to their society, we need to warn our culture. Right now, we have a huge increase of human trafficking, particularly of children. There are 85,000 children who came across the border unaccompanied, were in some sort of federal custody, but are lost. Nobody knows where they are. That's huge. And we have all kinds of people coming, bringing children, men bringing children by themselves without their mother. And does the border guard know? Is the DNA the same? Is this your child? Or is this for being uh, uh, used for abuse? And these are widespread issues that are destructive of lives on a long-term basis. And we need to gain perspective on how all of these are wrong. The sexual abuse scandal in the church is part of this wider cultural problem and that at every level, clergy, teachers, professionals, families, border control, all of these issues must be addressed so that there are no Lolita Expresses anymore are no, none of these islands for the super rich, but the Super Bowl also being a place for great amount of abuse by the less super rich. All of this is the perspective we have to have. And Jesus wants us to understand that no matter where this abuse is, it's a grave evil. And we won't be able to hide under the mountains or the hills or the caves and no one will escape his righteous judgment, but no one is exempt or cut off from his aid and mercy. This is a very important message for us to bring to our society today and into the future, and to learn from this, and to learn from how Jesus addressed these women in Jerusalem. Okay. Let's stop there. We will uh, come back next week from that point. Um, I'd like to take a look at uh, some of your questions. Uh, and I'm going to start off with an email. It's not quite on this topic, but it's from Jan. I uh, wanted to get to it last week, but we ran out of time. Jan asks, Dear Father Mitch, my parish offers Mass via radio broadcast into your car uh, in the church parking lot and also the reception of Holy Communion at the door. I have medical conditions which make it challenging to attend inside. Does this fulfill my obligation? Jan. Yes, Jan, it does. You know, um, something that the church has always taught that is that 
if there is a medical issue, a serious medical issue, uh, that keeps you away from a holy mass, you have to pay attention to that, both to protect your own health, that's a very important value, but also in the case of some uh, situations, to make sure you don't spread disease to other people. That was one of the issues during the, the COVID time, that we don't want to spread disease to other people, especially a virus that was uh, so seemingly dangerous. So that is uh, something uh, that we, we do. And in fact, uh, while it would be in the case of many people, it's legitimate to stay home and simply watch uh, the liturgy on TV. That's one of the reasons we make Holy Mass available uh, here at the network on TV, so that those who can't get to Mass can at least watch. Or as in the case, I'll never forget one priest who uh, was blind. He had, he had lost his sight uh, in, in his uh, older age. And he would have the television for Mass in his chapel, his home chapel, so he could celebrate Mass with the television going on. And he couldn't, he knew the Mass by heart by the time this had occurred, but he didn't know all the changing prayers of each day and week or the readings. So he would sort of get as big a print as he could, follow along, but go along with it during the Mass here at EWTN. And that helped him. That's legitimate. But if you go there and you are listening to the Mass uh, broadcast from your church to your radio in your car, and then come to receive communion, that is doing as much as you possibly can while protecting yourself and other people in terms of health. So that is, uh, there's nothing morally wrong with that at all, okay? Uh, something that we always have to deal with. Now we have a caller online. Helen is calling from the great state of North Carolina. Helen, what can we do for you? Good afternoon, Father Pacwa. Uh, yes, ma'am. We are um, talking about Christ's suffering uh, during mm -hmm. the Lent, and uh, I would like to know if the Catholic Church uh, still uh, promote the mortification of the flesh, as uh, St. Paul mentioned earlier, uh, hurting yourself physically to make up for the sin. Yeah, you know, you know, self-mortification is still a, a very good thing. Um, you know, it has a couple elements to it. One is temperance, where we don't give in to every craving and desire. And self-mortification in terms of the legitimate pleasures of life by giving up certain tasty things to eat or buying certain things. We, we tend to buy a lot of things in our culture, giving up some of that. Uh, those kind of uh, disciplines uh, uh, and mortifications are considered good. When it comes, there, there is a tradition in the church of you know, self-affliction with a certain amount of pain. Um, this is something that should be done, and this is the way it was always traditionally done, 
with the consultation with a religious superior, if somebody is a nun or a monk uh, or priest, or with your confessor, so that it doesn't become some sort of spiritual athleticism where you sometimes can commit a sin of pride by saying, well, I can do more mortification than you. No, let it be guided by your spiritual director or confessor or religious superior. And, uh, and it's something that's usable um, to the extent it finds it, uh, it helps you. This is something that soldiers go through. They, you know, experience that as part of their training. And they go through a lot of difficult tests uh, that, you know, you'd say, well, it's not necessary, but it gets them ready in case they're captured by the enemy or if they're in very difficult terrain or if they get lost. And sometimes they'll have them suffer quite a bit, but it's training for other aspects of combat. Well, that is also the case with spiritual combat, that we are engaged in a spiritual war and uh, the enemy of our soul doesn't want us to be well disciplined. So we do that, but get guidance and don't just do it on your own, okay? We're gonna take a little break. We'll come back with more of your questions, calls and emails, so please stay with us. First, I want to invite you to join me tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for EWTN Live. I'll be speaking with Francis Meyer about his recent conversations with priests, bishops, religious, and lay people on the state of the Catholic Church in America today. They show a very frank and sobering yet hopeful picture of the current situation in which American Catholics find themselves. So the, it's uh, some very good conversations that he had and very straightforward. I, he did them anonymously at his request. They, the people, the priests and bishops and religious didn't ask for anonymity. He wanted them to be anonymous so that he could keep it just what they could say what they want without worrying about what people might think of them and have a very straightforward conversation. So it's, it's quite good. Um, we'll have a good conversation on that. But now we have uh, another caller, Eric from the great state of Rhode Island, who, uh, matter of fact, I think I was gonna answer your email, but now you're right here with us. So go ahead, Eric. Very prophetic, Father. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, it's not prophetic. You sent an email. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I, what I, you uh, got for our, your question? I appreciate the, uh, the help. I love the show. I always learn something new. 
I have a bit of a math question for you today. Yes. Uh, I hope uh, not stretching you too far here, but um, we have various examples in the Gospels of Jesus prophesying that he'll be put to death and rise again after three days. Mm-hmm. Um, we also, though, are told that he dies on the cross at about three in the afternoon on Good Friday, mm-hmm. and that by Easter Sunday morning, when Mary arrives at the tomb to find it empty, he's, you know, he's already been risen. So if I'm doing my math properly, 3 p.m. Good Friday to Easter morning is roughly a day and a half, which is only about half the time that Jesus predicted it would take. So am I understanding it wrong or what? Yes, you are. (laughs) Okay, I figured figured it much. Okay, uh, Eric, no, it's, it's a good question. I get it fairly frequently, but it, it, it's, it is reading it incorrectly because what the texts say, I'll give you uh, something from the, um, uh, the, the passages you meant where Jesus uh, predicts his coming uh, death and resurrection and that he will be raised again the third day day. Same thing, that's Matthew 16, 21, Matthew 17, 23, that he, uh, uh, he will be raised on the third day. Matthew um, uh, uh, 20, verse 19, he'll be raised on the third day. It doesn't say that he will be there for three days. That would require Uh, you know, uh, 72 hours, but it's on the third day. So the first day is Friday, Saturday, the Shabbat is the second day, and then uh, it's the third day on Sunday. So that's what's key, is that he says it's on the third day, not after three days. Does that help? Yes. Yeah, very much so. I I thought that might have been the answer, but I wanted to get some clarification from someone who knows far more about it than I do. So, (laughs) well, it's uh, and I've got my handy dandy uh, little, uh, you know, computer with I I was able just to type in the word third. And it's not only in the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke. It's also in Acts of the Apostles and the other New Testament means that um, our Lord uh, you know, rose on the third day, and that's what's going on. So, uh, so that's that's all. And you know, you can imagine, um, you know, the suffering and death and burial. You want that over as soon as possible. Uh, so he rises on the, the the early Sunday. Not let it linger. Don't blame him on that. And then uh, actually. I'm glad he didn't linger because that would mean we have to wait even longer for it to celebrate Easter. All right. And then we have a, an email from Dennis in Colchester, England. Great to hear from you from Great Britain. It says, Dear Father Mitch, listening to your show recently, I heard a question relating to Pilate's remarks about truth. With all due humility, might I be allowed to suggest that the old translation I knew as a child was a much better way of communicating the bitter cynicism of Pilate when he said truth. What is that? So uh, the latest translation of what is truth makes it sound almost like 
Pilate was a questioning soul rather than a man not interested in truth. Love the program, uh, Dennis and Colchester. Um, it, it's interesting that you bring up the translation of your youth. Um, I don't. I don't have a copy here with me of the Dewey Reams translation, but I do, you know, have on my computer the King James Bible, uh, the, the seven, 1627 edition, but it's no different than the 1611. And even there in the 17th century, uh, they had translated it as what is truth. Um, you know, and the reason for that is the Greek says, ti esten aletheia. You know, it just says, what is truth? That's just a very literal translation. Now, uh, again, you, you do want to communicate. Uh, I think your, your point is well taken. You want to communicate a sense that he is a cynic rather than someone sincerely, um, uh, you know, taking a look at the question of what is truth. You're, you're absolutely right on that. But maybe that's the difference between Colchester, England, and my hometown of Chicago, Illinois. We assume cynicism. So <laughs> I read it cynically, what is truth. I, but it, and it is meant to be understood as coming from a man who is a cynic, which, by the way, was a school of philosophy that existed in ancient times. It comes from Greek. Greek, um, the, the uh, kine is the word for dog, and, and the cynics were people that were compared to dogs. It wasn't a very complimentary name for their school. But they didn't believe that there was truth. So that's why they had that, okay? And then um, I'll go to Clyde in the uh, great state of Louisiana where they are celebrating Mardi Gras, hopefully with enough virtue and restraint to have a good time without going crazy. Uh, Clyde says, Father Mitch, even if Judas had not betrayed Jesus, I believe Jesus would still have been crucified since Jesus had been speaking in the temple area, all the Jewish leaders knew what he looked like, correct? Why was it important for Judas to betray Jesus? It seems to me that Judas was important to emphasize how Jesus could not convert everyone, even with Jesus being God. Um, you know, I, I don't know if that is the main message of that. Um, it does show that even though Judas had witnessed the multiplication of loaves and fish twice, he had seen the raising of Jairus' daughter, the raising of the son of the widow of Nain. He had seen uh, people being healed of blindness, leprosy, and so many other diseases, cripples walking, demons being cast out, all of that he had witnessed. And he still was willing to accept 
to, to betray Jesus. And secondly, it also, I, I think a, a more important element is it shows, especially based on what St. John tells us, that he'd been stealing all along and that he was focused on money. He had shifted attention away from Jesus to making a nice living. So he was stealing from the common purse all, all the while, and Jesus knew it. Didn't kick him out. Again, just like in the title of my book, Wheat and Tares, he knew that there was a weed sowed in the wheat field of the apostles. And aware of that, he still didn't uproot him. I think that is, uh, uh, that does get to your point. Um, what else? We'll have to wait maybe to ask our Lord about deeper understanding of what's going on. But it is the fact that he betrayed Jesus and it was consistent with some other behavior going on before he was tempted to get the 30 pieces of silver. One temptation I cannot give into is going over time because they won't let me. So let me give you all blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and lead you in all of your ways by his peace. May Almighty God bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And remember, Mother Angelica was inspired by our Lord to have this network brought to you by you instead of advertisers. And so, like she did, we still ask that you keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, and we'll be able to pay all of our bills too. God bless you all, and thank you.